Hello and welcome to episode five of Friendship and Fluency, Learning English with Andy and Stephanie. I'm Andy and I'm joined again by my lovely wife, Stephanie. How's it going? And we're excited to have you joining us for this episode. Today, we're going to be talking about one amazing reward of language learning, and that is safety. We're going to be talking about an important principle of language learning, not demanding direct correlation between languages. We're going to be looking at a classic English poem and digging into both its vocab and its meaning. And then, like always, we will be finishing our episode with a story about one of our funny language learning mistakes. So definitely stick around till the end because you don't want to miss this one. Let's get started. So to begin our episode today, we want to talk about one of the benefits or rewards of language learning. And I want to back up and just say that it's important for us to focus on these benefits or rewards because language learning is a big project, right? It's hard work. It takes a long time. And no matter how positive of a language learner you are, you're going to have days where you feel discouraged, where you feel like giving up. And on those days, it's very helpful to remember why you have committed to this big project. What are the benefits? What are the rewards that are going to come into your life because you have taken on this good work, this good goal of learning the English language? So that's why we want to talk about these things. This is getting a little bit into the psychology of language learning. Not very many people talk about these things. So what is the language learning reward that uh, we're going to discuss today? Yeah, today we're talking about how learning language can help you be safer, both in a crisis situation and out of a crisis situation. So first of all, in a crisis situation... Obviously, knowing the language can help you be able to navigate whatever crisis situation is happening. If you're needing to go somewhere by taxi, if you're needing to stop and ask um, a policeman or a bystander what's going on, you need to be able to advocate for yourself. You, you will have all that language. But learning the language will also come along with a cultural understanding, a deeper understanding of what's going on around you in society. And so I think in a crisis situation, if you know the language, you also have a deeper understanding of what's actually going on. So this can help you avoid kind of a panic response or freaking out if, you, if you're able to, from, from speaking with your neighbor, understand, okay, no one else mm -hmm. is panicking. Everyone else is calm or everyone else is a little concerned. And here's why. So kind of both having the actual language and then having the cultural uh, understanding to undergird it, to uh, support it. Right. I remember some of our uh, foreign friends, when we, were, when we were living in the Middle East, they shared how when they were living in a different country and there was a big explosion in their city, they did not know the local language mm -hmm. of their neighbors. And so they were unable to navigate that crisis mm -hmm. in a way that felt good. They told me that they never want to be in that kind of situation again, where mm -hmm. there's a big security crisis 
and you are unable to communicate with your neighbors when they're feeling nervous and your neighbors mm-hmm. are panicked mm-hmm. and maybe they're forgetting their English mm-hmm. and just speaking very, very quickly in their language, because you haven't studied their language, you're unable to get the information that you need mm-hmm. to make wise decisions and know that your family is safe. For a crisis, it mm-hmm. is, uh, it's very important. Yeah, and I think even knowing that you have that language in your toolbox can help you not be afraid kind of looking down the road, knowing, okay, if this That's happens, right. I I have access to these resources. And right. that actually leads me into how does language help you be more safe when you're not in a time of crisis? And the points are very similar. I think when you're not in a crisis, language knowledge and cultural knowledge, it helps you navigate the world in a safer way. It helps you avoid becoming a target for criminals. It helps you learn what is normal in this culture and what is not normal. It can also help you stick out less. So those things can all help you be more safe because they're actually helping you kind of blend in 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 a good way um, and not stick out in a way that paints you as someone who doesn't know what's going on, is vulnerable. And that's just basic wisdom for kind of any scenario is learn what's normal in in this particular context. Right. Um, But then also, if you can make friends who will help you continue to deepen your your language, but also your cultural understanding, that's just kind of an ongoing wise practice Mm -hmm. for, for safety. Yeah. It's amazing how when you talk about this idea of situational awareness, how much of being safe really anywhere in the world, is having your eyes and your senses open mm-hmm. to just what's going on around you and what you, like you said, what's normal and mm-hmm. what's not normal. Mm-hmm. Well, when you are able to speak the language of your surroundings, you are able to much better understand uh, what is normal, what's not normal. And you're able, you have a lot more freedom to navigate situations that might not be safe for others even mm-hmm. because you have the ability to speak, to understand, to communicate in all kinds of situations. I remember in the country where I grew up, this was a country where there was a lot of crime. It's a wonderful country, but there's a lot of crime and it wasn't especially safe for women Mm -hmm. to go places without men Mm -hmm. because of the crime. But my mother had a lot more freedom than the other foreign women because she learned the local language and the Mm -hmm. local culture. And she went most places with local friends. Mm -hmm. And so there would be like these rules in the foreign community. They would say, oh, you should never go to the market by yourself Mm -hmm. without a man because it's not safe. Mm -hmm. My mother was actually a widow. My dad had died some years previous. So for her... There were times when she needed to go places on her own and learning the language gave her all kinds of freedom and safety that uh, some of the other foreign women sadly didn't have because they didn't learn the language. Mm -hmm. So I grew up even seeing this fleshed out in my mom's example. And I learned from that, no matter where you go in the world, the safest thing you can do is learn the language and culture. Mm -hmm. When we lived in Kurdistan, I had some friends who were They were there maybe uh, working uh, security jobs and they would say to me, how is it that your family is just moving around with no weapons and and you're not worried about things? And 
you know, every time we go out, we have all of our, our guns and security. And I would say, well, it's because we've learned the local language and culture and because we have local friends that we have this freedom and we feel very safe. I feel mm-hmm. more safe with these skills mm-hmm. than with like other security skills. And that might depend on where you're living because some is very safe, very open to foreigners. But in general, I think it's a sound principle. Learning a language leads you to be safer anywhere in the world, in a crisis or in normal times. So next, we wanted to talk about an important language learning principle, and that is not demanding direct correlation or direct translation from one language to another. We touched on this at the end of our last podcast episode, but we wanted to talk about this principle in more detail because it's a very common mistake for people to not know about this truth. And so to bring this pressure and this demand to their language learning, Mm -hmm. that makes things more difficult for them. So can you explain for us this principle? Yeah, it's very natural, especially as adult learners, to want to make sense of a new language in that way. You know, to say, I know what this thing is. And so now tell me what this thing is in another language. You know, that's how most of our brains work. Yeah, so it's not wrong, uh, but I don't think it's the wisest or most fun way to go about learning a language for a few reasons. Number one, it can just be very frustrating and also very limiting. Many phrases, words, grammar concepts are not going to have a direct, you know, kind of one-to-one translation from one language to English. I think a better way than saying, how do I say this in English? Or how do I say this in another language? Rather than that, uh, I would suggest kind of describing a scenario or using a picture or using a song and kind of exploring the idea around that topic um, and seeing what comes out of it. Now, for very black and white learners, that can be very frustrating. But I think there is just a wealth of information to gain beyond just that one word. Kind of leads me into point number two, which is if you're looking for a one-to-one match, you know, what is this thing in my language? And now what is that one word in English? You're going to miss so much culture. And if you're missing the culture, you're missing out on all of that other language because language and culture are inseparable. So, for example, when I was learning family terms, words to describe family relationships in Kurdish, uh, I could ask, I could have asked, how do I say aunt and uncle in Kurdish? Because in English, we have aunt and we have uncle. And I could get that one-to-one translation, or if I... If I were to do what I I did then, which is to, you know, draw a family tree or use pictures and to kind of explore this idea simply by asking questions and continuing to dig deeper into this idea, I learned, oh, there's a whole different set of words for the male side of the family than there is for the female side of the family. And then that opens up this whole new room, as it were, of ideas about Kurdish culture. That comes with all of this new vocabulary. And so I think just as we think about not 
demanding a direct translation or a direct correlation between words. I want to encourage learners to rewire the way you're approaching language. It's not just about translate this to this. It's about approaching language as a kind of a living right. thing that has culture and beauty and really awesome things to discover. To come at it from a sort of philosophy angle, what's going on with a language is humans experience life with their senses, and they want to put meaning to their experience. And so they are using these, these verbal forms. They're connecting meaning with form. And so when I say aunt in English, that word aunt means either my father's sister or my mother's sister. Mm. And I put this particular meaning together with this particular form. But every language in the world puts meaning and form together in a slightly different way. We all are having very similar experiences as humans. But then when our cultures and languages go to match, to, to get the meaning from those experiences and to just talk about that meaning with these forms, every language has a different system of doing this. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the meaning and form come together in a very similar way, but it's almost never exactly 100% the same. And if you demand a direct one-to-one -one correlation or translation from one language to another, you're going to be frustrated. I remember some of my students being frustrated because there's this word in Kurdish, takana, which means uh, the only girl in a family or the only boy in a family. Mm -hmm. And they would ask me, teacher, what is takana in English? And I would say, we don't have a word for that concept. We have a, a phrase, only child, for someone who has no brothers or sisters, mm -hmm. but we don't have a special title for the only boy in a family of sisters or the only girl in a family of brothers. And some of them were frustrated by this. Why don't you have this mm -hmm. word? We need this word. Mm -hmm. Well, you can still communicate that idea. You just need to use a sentence instead of a title. And this happens in both directions. And I would say go from there to be willing to explore that idea. Like, right. why do we have this concept in Kurdish and not in English? Yeah. Not necessarily from a viewpoint of one culture is better than the other, but both have a reason. And so part of that language sticking and having deeper meaning is understanding the cultural right. implications behind it. Often when a language has more specific vocabulary for something than another language has, mm -hmm. that is because that culture is stronger in that area or they prioritize it more. So English historically has been called the businessman's friend. English historically has been the language of business and science for the last 500 years. And so lots of business terminology, lots of science terminology. If, if you are going to study these uh, areas of life, English is going to have specific words for all of these. But English doesn't have as many specific words for family relationships. So when you go study Kurdish, you realize Kurdish has all of these specific titles for different people who are my relatives that English doesn't have. This must mean that Kurdish is stronger or emphasizes sort of relationships with the relatives more than my culture does. Mm -hmm. Whereas historically, English 
English cultures have emphasized more business and science. So you can see it's a window, like you're saying, asking that why question becomes a window into where is this culture stronger or weaker? And it's a good rule. If a culture is strong in something, the language is going to have a whole cloud of specific terms, vocabulary Mm -hmm. connected to that topic. And if a culture kind of ignores something or doesn't emphasize it, they won't have as many words for it. All right. So the third part of our podcast today is going to be looking at a classic English poem. Today, we're going to be looking at another poem by the American poet Robert Frost. Robert Frost was a poet who was writing in the late 1800s, the early 1900s, and he lived in a beautiful part of America called New England. These are the northeastern states. So a number of his poems are about the nature of New England. And this poem is called Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening. So I'm going to recite this poem, and then we're going to talk about some specific vocabulary, and then also look into the meaning of the poem. The reason that we look at poems like this is to give you a chance to really challenge your uh, English skills through the form of poetry. Mm. Poetry is one of the more difficult aspects of any language. It's also one of the more beautiful aspects. And so, again, we want to connect language learning with emotion anytime that we can because that helps learning so much. Yeah, and last week we talked about connecting those different core areas, reading, writing, speaking, and listening. So even reading poetry can be an opportunity to engage at least two of those areas. You're reading these words, but then to challenge yourself that you actually understand. You can write a summary in your own words. You can Mm -hmm. speak about it to someone. Yeah, don't stop at just reading words and understanding individual words, but really trying to dig into the meaning can be really beneficial. Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening by Robert Frost. Whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near, between the woods and frozen lake, the darkest evening of the year. He gives his harness bells a shake to see if there is some mistake. The only other sounds the sweep of easy wind and downy flake. The woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep. Miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. So that's the poem. It's lovely. It's a very beautiful poem. It's painting this picture of nature in the winter when it's snowing, and a very calm, quiet scene where this traveler stops beside this forest and writes this poem about his experience stopping by these woods on a snowy night. So let's look at some of the vocab first from this poem, and then we'll discuss some of the layers of meaning in this poem and what it might mean for our lives. So once again, we have a Robert Frost poem Mm -hmm. about woods. Although the last poem, he said, two roads diverge in a yellow wood. The wood means forest. Here we have the more common form of forest, which is woods with an S on the end. 
So that would be the first vocabulary word for you to focus on, woods. So the second vocab word for us to focus on is the word village. Village is a small community, smaller than a town. Usually a small community where the people work in things like farming or in raising animals. These kind of rural jobs are very common for villagers. After that, he says he, he stopped to watch the woods fill up with snow. To watch. To watch is like to see, but it has this ongoing sense to it. So we watch something happening. We watch a movie, mm-hmm. a film. Just an intentionality mm-hmm. to I have chosen to watch, is to stop and to see it over a period of time. A basic but important vocab word from this poem is snow. Snow is, of course, a kind of frozen water in the winter that comes down in these white flakes, not to be confused with hail, which mm-hmm. is just frozen rain that comes down in these ice chunks that comes down fast and hard. Snow floats down. This next word is the word queer. And historically, this word has meant strange or unusual. Modern times, it's beginning to take on some other meanings that are different from this. But the historical meaning of this word has been strange mm-hmm. or unusual. Yeah, so it's really not used in that same way right. anymore. That's right. Yeah, and so you should learn the meaning of the historical meaning of the word queer to understand it when you read it in literature or in books. But it's not really a word that you are going to need to use in daily conversation anymore because the meaning has changed. The next vocab word would be farmhouse. Mm-hmm. Farmhouse. This is one word, a compound word made from farm and house. And so this would be the home that a farmer lives in connected to his land. You could call that a farmhouse. He mentions stopping between the woods and frozen lake. So a frozen lake, a lake is a large round body of still water, smaller than an ocean or a sea, but it's not moving water like a river or a stream. A lake is a large round body of water that's still. And a frozen lake means the top of that water has become ice because of the cold weather. Frozen lake. This next vocab word is a little bit older, connected to the time when people used horses more. Word is harness bells. The harness was a kind of a system of straps that went around the horse's uh, face and neck that you would use to steer to control the horse. And the bells would be small bells connected to it that would make noise when the horse would move his his body. And so this was helpful. Mm-hmm. I don't know why it was helpful, but it was helpful to have bells on your horses. Yeah, maybe for safety, maybe for letting other drivers of horses know that you were coming. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were no headlights. Like a horn on a car. Maybe, I don't know. Interesting. But if any of our listeners know the song Jingle Bells, that's referring to these bells on the horses' harnesses that are making the noise of of jingling. So it's, it's an entire song about... Horses with bells on their harnesses and the beautiful noise that it makes mm. and the fun that's had 
So maybe it had two, it sort of brought a pleasant experience because of the nice sound of bells. Mm -hmm. And it also functioned as like a safety device mm -hmm. to let people know you were coming fast on your horse. The poet mentions the word sweep in the line. The only other sounds, the sweep of easy wind. Sweep means an action where something is sort of pushed from mm -hmm. one side to another side. And mm -hmm. so... When you get a broom and you sweep your floor, you take your broom and you are sweeping the dirt from mm -hmm. one side to another. Well, other things can sweep as well. Mm -hmm. And so in this poem, he says that the wind is doing an easy sweep. So mm -hmm. the snow is not falling directly down, mm -hmm. but the, the wind is blowing gently to the side. And maybe it's blowing the snow gently, gently diagonal or gently sideways a little bit. The easy sweep. And then right after that, he mentions downy flake. Here he's talking about the snowflakes. Mm -hmm. And down is the soft inside feathers mm -hmm. that chickens have or geese have or other birds. They're very soft and they're very warm. Yeah, it made me smile because I thought of little baby ducks all yeah. nestled in together. All so their little fluffy heads poking out. If something is downy, it's very soft. And so he's comparing these snowflakes to these inner feathers of mm -hmm. birds that are very soft, very warm, and very gentle. Mm -hmm. So there's different kinds of snowstorms. You have some snowstorms with heavy, fast, um, maybe more icy snow. And then you have snow like this, where it's, it's a very gentle snow. The mm -hmm. flakes are coming down like downy flakes. It's like they're small feathers floating to the ground. The poet says that the woods are lovely. Lovely is a synonym for beautiful mm -hmm. or pleasant or nice. We might use the word lovely mm -hmm. for a really positive experience where let's say we go and we get coffee with a friend and we have a wonderful conversation with this dear friend. Someone asks you afterwards, how was your time? You say, oh, it was lovely. I have really missed my friend. So it's a, it's a nice, positive word. Mm -hmm. He says the woods are lovely. They're beautiful. They're comforting. They're giving mm -hmm. you this positive emotional feeling. This morning, as I drove my kids to school, it was lovely. The sky was a beautiful mix of blue and white. And it was bright, but not too bright. All along the road as I drove. It's fall right now here in America. And so there was incredibly colorful trees and bushes, bright red and orange and yellow and different shades of green. So I would say my drive was lovely. Like the, the act of driving there and back was a lovely experience. It doesn't have as much connection to love, worthy of love, although that might be its origin. Instead, we use it for things more that are beautiful, pleasant, that are comforting, mm -hmm. give us this warm, happy, peaceful emotion. We would say those things are lovely. Like drinking chai that's been made over a campfire mm. in the fall. Yes. That's lovely. With walnuts. Walnuts? Mm. With baklava. <laughs> With baklava, yes. And the last vocab word is promises. He says, I have promises to keep. Promises are, of course, when you tell someone that you are going to do something. But a promise is a kind of a commitment. It is stronger than just saying, I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. You promise to do something, you are telling them 
absolutely 100%, I will do this thing. Older English words would be like an oath or a covenant. But in contemporary English, maybe a strong commitment, a strong verbal commitment. So that's some of the vocabulary from this poem. Let's dig into the meaning a little bit and discuss what we think the poet is trying to communicate through what he has written. Now, there is one basic level of meaning that you could say is the direct meaning, and that would be he is describing a lovely experience. The darkest evening of the year, so maybe it's December 21st, right? The, the ninth, the longest night of the year. This is an important date for many different cultures. Some cultures have celebrations for this night. And he is riding home on his horse and decides that he's going to stop and admire this beautiful scene of snow falling into the woods. And then, then he just describes the experience. So that's one layer of meaning. But I don't think that is all that the poet is talking about here. I think he's trying to communicate some deeper things as well. So as you listen to this poem, what is some of the deeper meaning that you think the poet is trying to communicate, especially in the last stanza, when he says, the woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but I have promises to keep, miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. Yeah, it's really um, almost kind of haunting. I, I think of two things. One would be, you know, if I were in his shoes, if I were this man in the poem, I think I would be tempted to stay longer, to just kind of sit, not physically sit, but to stay there in the beautiful nature um, that he's describing and admire its beauty and to think about deeper things. So I think there's this sense of being torn away, being pulled away from thinking about deeper things because of the things that are necessary in life. So he has to go. He has an appointment. He can't just stay and gaze at beauty for yeah. hours. But it does also seem like there's a even deeper than that meaning of maybe kind of a longing for all of it to be over. Not in the sense that he's depressed and wants to die, but just a longing for like a final piece that he sees reflected in this scene in nature. You've got kind of a picture of perfect harmony within nature or beauty, just this little glimpse of peace, you know, the gentle snow falling and the, the sounds of the horse's harness and the wind is blowing. And so I think there's something in his heart that is touched by that beauty and wanting to maybe stay there for forever. Right. But he recognizes one, he has, he has obligations, but he also has more years ahead of him, more life to live. He probably has a family right. waiting for him. Yeah, I agree. It seems like there's these two deeper layers. One, speaking to this tension that we all feel between this desire to stop and enjoy the beauty of life, the beauty of nature, and to rest deeply and our need to keep our commitments, keep our promises, get home, do the work we need to do, do the work that keeps life going. And we, in this life, we feel this tension between a more contemplative life 
where you are focusing on beauty and deeper things and a more practical life where you are working hard because you need money for food and for a place to live and to take care of your family. And so there's this tension all of us feel that I think is expressed well in those lines. But I have promises to keep, miles to go before I sleep. So he's saying, I want to stay and continue enjoying this beauty, but I have made commitments and I need to keep these commitments and get back to real life. But then, like you said, I think there is this deeper layer where he is maybe even speaking about death or the next life, where he's saying, I have miles to go before I sleep. And it's interesting, sleep throughout literature and in poetry is often used as a metaphor for death. You have your sleep every night, and then you have the final sleep, which is often used to speak of dying. And so in one sense, it's like he's saying, I want that final rest. And it's, he even contrasts it in the two words, lovely and dark. He's looking in the forest, he says, the woods are lovely. And then he gives you these surprise adjectives, dark and deep. You don't often put lovely and dark together. It's like he's longing for this deep rest, this deep sleep that will free him from the burdens and the troubles of this life. And so many have interpreted this poem. It's made me cry a little bit. So many have interpreted this poem as the poet also speaking about this longing that we all feel for a deeper rest than we ever experience in this life. And the hope that in death, perhaps in the next life, we will find that deep peace, right? That deep rest. Mm -hmm that we all are hoping for so much. So consider memorizing this poem. Consider thinking about it and chewing on the meaning of it. Have you ever experienced this tension that this poem is describing between wanting to stop and enjoy the pleasures, the beauty, the simplicity of nature, and feeling like you are pulled into having to live a more practical, busy life? And do you ever experience that longing for a deeper rest than you have ever known. I think all humans do. The question is, are we aware of it? Are we paying attention to these different desires that are in us that poetry is so good at kind of exploring? Do our listeners know what it means to chew on the meaning of a to poem? To chew on the meaning. Uh, in English, we say to chew on something. It means to think about it. It's The image is like of how a cow eats, right? When a cow how each day, you know, they chew on the grass for a long time before they swallow it. Right. And that's the image is when you're chewing on something, it's like your brain is chewing on those words. So to think until deeply you can get on the it. deeper meaning. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's good. That's a good idiom to point out. Mm-hmm. Well, we want to finish our podcast with another language learning stake. This one also comes from when I was 19 or 20 years old in Kurdistan, a brand new student of the Kurdish language. One of the first things that you learn about when you're learning a new language is the names of daily food and how to order food in a restaurant. And so I was learning how to order chicken. I learned the word for chicken in Kurdish, which is barishk. And I learned the word for boiled, kulau. Problem was, Right around the same time, I learned the word for fat, which is kalo. Now, 
Maybe for Kurdish speakers, kulao doesn't sound anything like hello. But to American ears, they sound very close. And it's、mm-hmm. very easy to get them mixed up. And so, without knowing it, when I was be in a restaurant, I started asking the waiters in that restaurant for fat chicken. Would say, "What would you like to eat?" And I would say, "Bishki kulao." Now, even though fat chickens are probably more delicious than skinny chickens, true. That's not what I was trying to say. I was trying to say boiled chicken, but Ishki Kulo pointed it out to you. So some of my close friends、mm-hmm. pointed it out to me, and after that, they would actually tell me we'd go out to eat together, and they'd say, "Say it again. Say I want fat chicken, not boiled chicken." And I would say it, and they would laugh, and the waiter would laugh, and I would say, "Oh, this is this is so embarrassing," but it was fun and. I never forgot the difference between fat and boiled chicken, and then eventually I would say it just for fun、mm-hmm. to see if people would notice. Ask them, would you like a boiled chicken or would you like a fat chicken or would you like a boiled chicken that is a fat chicken? So yes, watch out for these words that have pronunciations that are very close.、Mm-hmm. Those may be the place where you make some of your funniest language mistakes.、Mm-hmm. I will say though, I do support eating fat boiled chickens. Delicious. It is delicious. Kurdish boiled chicken、mm-hmm. is quite good. It's quite、Miss、good. It. Far superior to American chicken in many ways. Well, that has been episode five of Friendship and Fluency: Learning English with Andy and Stephanie. Thank you for joining us, or joining us again. If you're a return viewer or return listener, please rate this podcast or. Uh, give us a like、mm-hmm. on YouTube. Share this with your friends if they are learning English, and we really appreciate it. Yeah, feel free to mention in the comment section if there are things you'd love to see covered in upcoming episodes. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Thanks again. Take care.